Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, there's been plenty of post-election chatter about the future of the Ontario NDP and Liberals, but what about the Ontario Green Party? Is it time for them to look at new possibilities? Canadian authorities are preparing for the imminent return of the anti-vaccine convoy planned for Canada Day. To make the concern even greater, some Conservative leaders are supporting the effort. And RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky is accused of interfering in the Nova Scotia mass shooting investigation. Stephen Chase, senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail, joins us to talk about that. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to focus on Ontario politics uh, because we're heading towards an important time. We have the election results, of course. Tomorrow, uh, Doug Ford and his cabinet uh, will be sworn in. We don't even know who they are yet, but that's going to be announced tomorrow. And uh, there's a lot of speculation about the future of the opposition parties. Uh, Should the Liberals and the NDP forge a partnership to try to strengthen the medium left, I guess? There's a lot of speculation. But as our uh, friend Steve Pakin uh, puts in his blog today, maybe it's time the Ontario Greens ask themselves some hard questions about their future. Steve Pakin, of course, is the host of The Agenda on TVO, and uh, he joins us here on the Bill Keller Show to talk about Steve, good morning. Glad you had some time for us today. Always uh, great to talk to you again, Bill. Before I get to your blog, uh, I want to first of all congratulate you on an incredible show last night on the agenda uh, with a cacophony of former Ontario premiers, uh, <laughs> basically musing about the future and, and, and politics in general. It was enlightening, entertaining, and uh, and I think very timely given what we're going through right now and, and the, the machinations that are going on in Ontario politics. Well, thanks for saying that. That was a logistically very difficult show to pull together. You can imagine there are there are six ex-premiers of Ontario around right now, and I managed to get all six to say yes to going to the Mars Discovery District in downtown Toronto to do a taping about the state of democracy in the province. And then Mike Harris got called away for business, so we were down to five. And then Bob Ray got COVID, so that meant uh, he couldn't come to Toronto to be with us. He had to be in isolation, but he was... Good enough to put a suit on, and even though he was feeling lousy, uh, he did it from New York via Zoom. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we had a very, uh, I thought, a very thoughtful conversation. It was no partisan BS. It was all really quite, um, um, you know, quite thoughtful. And um, if people want to find it, it's on our website, tvo.org, or go to YouTube, The Agenda with Steve Pakin, on our YouTube channel, and it's all there as well. Uh, you know what I found interesting about this, uh, as, as the hour wound up, uh, the consensus among a number of them, and they're very different people from very different political backgrounds, of course, but when they started talking about where we were going and, and, and the state of politics, uh, they, they seem to be on the same page most of the time. Well, I think the page that everybody's on right now is is deeply concerned, uh, veering towards saddened. And I think the one thing that really disturbed all of them uh, equally was the fact that 43.5% of the people showed up to vote in this last Ontario general election, and that's the lowest number ever. Now, I guess before we get too cataclysmic about the whole thing, we, we need to ask ourselves, does that mean nobody cares anymore? Does that mean we've completely lost interest in democracy? And I don't think that's the case. Could it also mean that maybe people were content because they'd been told for six straight months by the media that Doug Ford was going to win this thing in the cakewalk, and what's the point of participating? And enough people were content with that outcome that they just thought, well, if that's the way it's going to be, I can live with that, therefore I don't have to show up. I bet that was a certain part of it as well. And I think we also have to acknowledge the fact that a lot of Ontarians just were not jazzed at all by this campaign. They they didn't like what... Um, Maybe all of the leaders, but certainly what the opposition leaders had on offer, and therefore didn't feel motivated to get out and vote. So amidst all of that, it's an explanation for why turnout was so low. And, um, you know, obviously people who do what you and I do for a living, uh, we, we, we try very hard to engage people in, in politics and public life in the province because we think it's important. And it, it sometimes feels a little depressing when uh, only four out of ten of us come out and, and actually vote. But... Um, uh, I'm certainly open to suggestions to how to improve it, that's for sure. Well, and they were hinting and talking around that. I think both Bob Ray and, and, and Kathleen Wynne uh, were talking about the first-past-the-post system, which is what we use. You get the most votes, you're the winner, Steve. Uh, and, and maybe there's got to be something done about that. But that's that's not a new discussion. I mean, past uh, uh, premiers have tried that. Dalton McGiddy had a referendum about it, and there just doesn't seem to be an appetite for it here, any kind well, of a political change. That's that's the problem. I mean, the, we may we may rue the fact that six out of ten people voted against Doug Ford, 
But I got news for you. Six out of ten people voted against Bill Davis. <laughs> you know, uh, five and a half out of ten people voted against Mike Harris. And yet, because of our system, uh, that's the way it works. So you're the first person past the finish line. You, you get the you get the seat. Um, you know, I, I, my phone's been ringing off the hook. My emails have been loading up in my email inbox from people who are saying we've got to get rid of the current system by which we elect people. But here's the reality. We've been doing it this way for 155 years. You're right. We had a referendum in 2007 in which an alternative system was put on the ballot and overwhelmingly rejected. Justin Trudeau made a promise uh, in 2015 for that election that we would never have a first-past-the-post election ever again. And he went back on that promise when he, in his judgment, determined that there was no consensus uh, for an alternative going forward. So we are where we are. And if we want different outcomes, and I'm not saying we should, but if people want different outcomes, they're going to have to come up with more intriguing solutions than simply saying, well, it's time we impose proportional representation. Because I'm sorry to tell those people, it's probably not on. There's no appetite to do it. One of the key moments, I don't don't want to spend the whole time here talking about the show, but it was stimulating. I think it was Bob Ray that simply said, look, if the opposition party is concerned about this, get off your butts and and get the trust of the public back. I mean, and and that was a simple message. You know, don't blame the voting system. Don't blame the weather. Don't blame. Just you did not win. You did not win the hearts and minds of voters. And and that's a cold reality, but it's, it's one that I think they have to. To accept in situations like this now one which by the way is a nice segue into your blog uh, because there's been a lot of talk as you know steve after the election that you know the liberals got wiped out again the ndp just can't seem to get public support maybe it's time for an amalgamation of those parties but as you say your blog maybe they're talking about the wrong dance partners here <laughs> well on the on the issue of a liberal uh, new democratic party merger uh, there, there are a number of people, and I wouldn't say it's a majority by any stretch of the imagination, but there certainly are people who, Bill, I can remember them having conversations about this in 1975 when the Liberals yeah. and New Democrats came uh, second and third. Actually, it was the other way around. I think it was the New Democrats who came second and the Liberals third. And, and they talked even then about trying to get some kind of merger going so that they could d- defeat the Bill Davis government. This has been in the air for a long time, but the reality is the NDP and the Liberals are two very different political animals. They don't share the same philosophy. They have more mutual mistrust and dislike for one another than they do for the Conservatives. So this is one of the things that prevents the two of them from getting together. Um, They're just not, as much as they may have policies that overlap, they're just not really uh, in any mood to talk merger, even with two vacant leaderships right now. So if you wanted to do it, now would be the time, but there just doesn't seem to be the appetite to do it, and that's fine. I wonder about another uh, potential pair of dance partners, and again, not advocating this, just throwing it out there for discussion, Uh, and that is the Greens. The Greens have been fighting elections in the province of Ontario since 1985. That's 11 elections. That's 1,290 seats up for grabs over those 11 elections. And over that 37-year period of time, the Greens have won one seat twice. Now, if politics, I know politics isn't only about winning, but at some point, if you want to have an outsized influence, you've got to win something. And they have not. And even in this election in Perry San Muskoka, where all the ducks lined up for them to make a, another breakthrough for a second seat, right? No former sitting member, no liberal candidate. Um, Mike Schreiner in the riding over and over and over again. Uh, they came second, but we're still 2,000 votes behind. I think the Greens have to ask some serious questions about whether they are, in effect, a one-man operation, namely the leader, Mike Schreiner, whom everybody likes and everybody respects, but whether or not the existence of that party uh, merely takes votes away from the other two progressive parties and allows Tories to win elections more easily. I think that's a question that we need to consider. I don't know the answer, but I know enough people who think that is the case that maybe some alternatives should be looked at. Well, and you've talked about this on the program many times, of course, that is the political parties that tie themselves to ideology unwaveringly uh, tend to get lost in, in the shuffle in situations like this. And you remember the story, it was about, I guess, about a month ago uh, in Denmark, the equivalent of the Green Party uh, just revised their manifesto and they're embracing nuclear energy. Uh, that's, that doesn't happen in green parties too often, but they're looking at the world economic situation and said, maybe we have to broaden our horizons. 
that's the kind of, and I don't, I don't know how that's going to go over there, but I mean, that's the Green Party. But they do have a, a lot of influence on in that government uh, because of the way the government is structured. Uh, and I'm not suggesting our, the Ontario Green Party needs to do that. Uh, but there's got to be some flexibility. If you don't change with the times, uh, you're going to get, you know, le- you're going to be an afterthought. And I think that's maybe what's happening with these guys. Well, that is certainly, I mean, you put your finger on one of the big issues here. Because, uh, and again, going back to our previous discussion, the liberals are pro-nuclear, right? The liberals yeah. are, the, are the party that finished the Darlington nuclear reactor. The NDP is against nuclear power. The Greens are against nuclear power. Every time you turn the lights on in your studio, Bill, those lights are turned on because of nuclear power. Ontario generates 60% of its electricity because of nuclear power reactors in Darlington and Bruce and Pickering. I mean, you can you can be against nuclear power all you like, but if you want to shut them down, somebody's going to have to tell us how we're going to find the 60% of electricity generation we currently rely on nuclear for. And that's not going to come from windmills and sunshine. So, uh, you know, they, they, that's another uh, difficult issue among all those parties. Look, I'm not saying anybody's got to merge. I'm not, I'm not advocating that. But there are things short of a merger that these parties could do if, at the end of the day, the idea is to deprive the progressive conservatives of a victory. They can say, for example, uh, the next two liberal and NDP, uh, and NDP leaders, they could say, for example, you know what? We came second in Mississauga Streetsville, so how about you who came third, don't run a candidate there next time. And conversely, we came first in, you know, riding XYZ last time. Therefore, how about you don't run a candidate there next time? You could have these kind of official, unofficial, non-aggression pacts in various ridings so that the anti-Tory vote were not split among a multitude of parties. And, and that would presumably help um, solidify and unify the anti-conservative vote. Uh, but as I say, a lot of these parties can't stand each other more than they can't stand the Tories. So that's one of the many things that prevents them from coming up with any of these arrangements. Exactly, which is why we're where we are right now, a, a new uh, cabinet being sworn in, announced and sworn in tomorrow. Uh, we're told that uh, the Premier Ford has been consulting with a former uh, cabinet colleague, Christine Elliott, who did not run in this election. Are you expecting any surprises? I mean, most of the people that, that Doug Ford had a problem with in the cabinet have already been uh, exercised from that cabinet long <laughs> before the election. So are we going to get a lot of the same? Well, I mean, there are some vacancies, but uh, basically the same team. Well, here's the thing. There, there, are, there are two obligations right off the top. Obligation number one, you're right. Christine Elliott didn't win again. So we technically, uh, you know, I mean, she's technically still the health minister until she isn't and she won't be as of tomorrow. But that obviously is the most important job to fill right off, you know, coming right out of the gate. Uh, the name you always hear is Sylvia Jones. She is uh, the Dufferin Caledon MPP. She's the Solicitor General at the moment. Uh, she is. Uh, she gets high marks for competence, and uh, she is a temperature lowerer as opposed to a temperature raiser, uh, which uh, when you're the Minister of Health is also a good thing. Uh, so she's the name we hear uh, quite frequently. The long-term care minister has been an interim minister for the last six months, ever since Rod Phillips. Uh, resigned from politics, and that's a guy named Paul Calandra, who represents a riding in York Region. So uh, I, I imagine Doug Ford's going to want to fill that job on a permanent basis. So those two off the top, I think we're going to see new faces in. After that, you know, Bill, all bets are off after that. It, it could be a steady as she goes cabinet. It could be a we've got some people getting long in the tooth from the last government cabinet. We need to get some of them out and get some new faces in. Uh, Doug Ford he has both a a plus and a minus with the fact that he got even more MPPs this time out than he did the first time out, which I have to say I think has only happened four other times in Ontario history where a premier won a larger majority the second time out than the first time out. So Doug Ford's in some pretty rarefied company by doing that. Uh, But the question is, if you don't satisfy some of the people on the back bench who have been champing at the bit to get into cabinet, they've been loyal, good soldiers, doing their jobs, trying to make a pr- an impression. And if you bring back sort of the same old, same old, they get very, very tired and, and, and frustrated on the back benches. And uh, every premier will tell you, angry, frustrated backbenchers only means trouble. Uh, and therefore, he's really got to strike a balance in how uh, they can be satisfied. Um, I remember John Robarts when he was a premier second time out in 1967, winning a second majority government, when he basically went into his um, 
into his chief of staff and he said, you know what, we got a lot of older fat guys in that cabinet. We've got to start getting rid of them and get some new kids in there. And um, I don't know if Doug Ford's thinking that way, um, but we will find out Friday morning. It's going to be interesting. Uh, you can go to the TVO uh, webpage, by the way, and uh, and read the blog about uh, the possible amalgamation, or the considered amalgamation, anyway, and where the Green Party's going on this, too. Steve, again, uh, congrats on the show yesterday, and uh, thanks so much for spending time with us. I always appreciate our conversations. Not at all. It's a pleasure for me to join you, Bill. You take care. You, too. Steve Pakin, host of The Agenda with Steve Pakin on TVO. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We found out earlier this week that, uh, well, we're going to have part two, I guess, of uh, the uh, taking of Ottawa. Uh, it looks like uh, a number of the people that were involved in that first uh, truckers revolt, I, and I use that term loosely, but uh, there's not an awful lot of people that occupied downtown Ottawa for a couple of weeks, uh, said they're going to be back on Parliament Hill on Canada Day. Uh, which is not that far away, of course. And uh, there's some concern, of course, about what's going to happen, about safety concerns. Uh, there are some people that are saying, oh, don't worry, this is a peaceful protest. But there's some of the same people that said that the February incident was a peaceful protest, too. Uh, but what we're finding out right now is that uh, the Conservative Party, uh, a number of them anyway, are uh, embracing uh, the protesters and encouraging them. And uh, that's somewhat problematic for an awful lot of people. There's a, a great piece that uh, talks about this. Uh, from our, our good friend Justin Ling. Justin, of course, is a freelance investigative journalist uh, who's been investigating this for quite some time, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about what's happening and why. Uh, Justin, a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for this. Good morning, Bill. They have conservatives, some who anyway have talked on the record, have said they, they you know, they they encourage uh, freedom of expression and peaceful protest. Pierre Polyev is famous for using that line time and time again. Uh, but the fact that a number of these people are embracing and meeting with some of the organizers of this, I think a lot of Canadians are going to find this problematic. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> there's definitely a, a level of awkwardness, of inappropriateness, I mean, of, of, of a, a bizarre ally making going on here. I mean, I think a lot of people are looking at this and thinking to themselves, why? You know, why are you meeting? You know, I, we can talk a bit later about the sort of cleavage between the quote-unquote mainstream organizers, <clears throat> excuse me, and, you know, some of the more radical elements of this occupation. Um, clearly, there are folks who legitimately believe in peaceful protest, who don't want to overthrow the government, who, you know, may have anti-scientific beliefs, but don't have necessarily, you know, otherwise dangerous beliefs. Um, and then there are people who are kind of more extreme, and, and we can talk about the difference between those kind of camps later on. But even meeting with the people who helped manage and continue the occupation of Ottawa just is just bizarre. I mean, you know, just months ago when the occupation was happening, you had the Conservative Party oscillate from sort of ignoring it, saying that they should be met with, to saying that the government wasn't doing enough to clear them out, to, to calling out. The, the government for, you know, putting Canada's economy at risk by letting this continue. And now they're meeting with them buddy-buddy and telling them, we're your allies, we've always been your allies. That's a literal quote from a conservative member of parliament, Jeremy Patster. So it, it's strange. I mean, you know, so the, the, the men who showed up, there's three men who showed up who got invitations into parliament. Um, one of them, James Topp, is a veteran. He's been running across the country from B.C. to Ottawa in protest of some of these vaccine mandates. Um, but he has allied with just about every organization that helped put on the, the convoy and occupation. He's allied with overtly anti-vaccine organizations, including one called Vaccine Choice Canada, which has promoted just junk science about the vaccines. Um, next to him was a guy named Paul Alexander, who is a former White House advisor to the Trump administration, who was booted from the White House for being too radical. I mean, it's a guy, here's a guy who advocated for America to, from the very beginning, take a herd immunity approach that experts said would have killed millions of people. He has repeatedly said that thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people have died from the vaccine. He has said it's not safe to give to children. He has uh, promoted just junk science. He has openly called for a tribunal to prosecute politicians, public health officials, and pharmaceutical executives for their role in killing people with these vaccines. Uh, and, and finally, 
You had a guy named Tom Marazzo, who I think really helped organize this whole thing, um, who was the former spokesperson uh, for the convoy. I mean, he's a guy who was repeatedly sitting in front of the news cameras saying we're not leaving until the prime minister meets with us. Um, and And he was the one you may recall made a strange comment to the effect of, you know, we're willing to work in a coalition with the other parties if that's what it takes. You know, these guys are not serious. And the fact that they've now been given an air of legitimacy is is mind-boggling. Well, by one particular party, and as, as you mentioned in the piece, uh, Leslin Lewis, uh, who's uh, contending to be the leader of the uh, Conservative Party, uh, met with them. As a matter of fact, you, you recall, I think you and I had this discussion during the, the only leaders' debate in English uh, mm-hmm. between the peace, the, the Conservatives. Uh, Leslin Lewis and Pierre Polly were actually arguing about who threw more support at these guys at the time. Like, no, I'm, I'm more right-wing than you are, that, that sort of thing. And yeah. they used this as an example. That was the, that was the measuring stick for them. Well, ex- I mean, exactly. And I mean, Leslie Lewis, actually, and, and, and to be fair to Leslie Lewis, she probably has the claim to that mantle. I mean, she was at the occupation at least once because I saw her there wandering through the crowd. And it was actually, it's actually a really interesting moment because I think it really speaks to how much you have to see no evil, hear no evil, you know, uh, in order for you to support this thing. When I bumped into Leslie Lewis on the streets of Ottawa um, in the first week of the occupation, she was sort of wandering through the crowd with the staffer in tow. And as she's sort of walking down Wellington Street, you can hear this speaker on stage saying, we have to protect our kids. These, invi- these experimental therapies, which is what they call vaccines, aren't safe. You know, we have to stop this madness. You know, going on this anti-vaccine tirade, Leslie Lewis is walking by. So I came up to her and I said, you know, Miss Lewis, you know, I have a couple questions. She said, sure. She was very gracious with her time. She said, you know, I said, well, why are you here? And she said, well, I want people to make informed consent. I want there to be, you know, I don't want there to be mandates. And I said to her, do you think it's inappropriate that you're here given that people aren't, aren't just advocating choice. They're actually denouncing the vaccines and spreading misinformation about them. And she said, I don't hear any of that. I haven't heard any of that. I haven't heard anybody question the safety or efficacy of vaccines. So you kind of have to put your hands over your ears and pretend like things aren't happening in order for you to kind of explain around this convoy. Pierre Polyev does the same thing. I mean, he has repeatedly said, I support the aims of the, of the convoy, but I don't support any bad elements. You know, Aaron O'Toole tried this dance as well. You know, when I, when I questioned him in the early days of this occupation, when he just said he was going to meet with some of the leadership, you know, he said, you know, I'm going to, you know, sit down and meet with some of these hardworking truckers. And, you know, he said, I'm not going to meet with the, with the crazy types. I'm going to meet with the organizers. And I said to him, the organizers are the ones saying the crazy things. And he says, well, I won't meet with them either. So, you know, you kind of have to play this dance in order to rationalize this relationship. Because the reality is the organizers have said outlandish and offensive things. Even one of the guys sitting at the table in Parliament yesterday, Tom Marazzo, was tweeting earlier this, this year that the prime minister needs to be arrested for attempted murder and treason. You know, like this guy's now sitting in our seat of government chatting with, you know, a dozen MPs, which is just unbelievably offensive. You know, there there are individuals who are kind of, who have led this charge, who have affiliated with QAnon, who have espoused the white replacement theory, who have talked about the need for a tribunal to prosecute war crimes because of the pandemic. You know, these are not serious people. I, I don't think we need to demonize everyone. There's clearly, and I've said this constantly, there are a ton of people who have come out for this movement, who have supported this movement, who might have some bad ideas, but, you know, having a bad idea shouldn't disqualify you from the public square. There is nothing wrong with talking to your constituents. Um, and, and it's certainly not effective, like the Prime Minister has done, to just cast everyone with a wide net and say that everyone, you know, all of the people on the streets, all of the people who have supported the convoy, all of the people who are waving at trucks as they go by are racists and misogynists and, 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 and crazy and whatnot. That's not the case. But the case is that the people driving the bus, the people leading this movement, the people who have, um, you know, you know, sat in front of the TV cameras, who have, who have broadcast online, calling people to join this convoy, these are people with very troubling views who are significantly hobbling our ability to continue dealing with this pandemic. And there are people who are not going to be satisfied with the mandates dropping. There are people with a broader political plan at play. And the fact that we are helping them is just mind-boggling to me. How do you separate one from another? And how do you tell one from another, Justin? I mean, you were there in February. 
Uh, and and as, as you approach the Parliament Hill location where the, most of them are situated, you know, with this, you know, the, you know, inflatable castles and all this sort of stuff, how do you tell somebody who is just uh, has a philosophical difference against vaccines as opposed to somebody who, who espouses political anarchy? You know, let's go in and arrest the prime minister and try him and execute him. That, that's, well, and that was being yeah. told, and that was, that's still being repeated. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, there are, there, are, there are definitely radicalized elements inside this crowd. So, you know, I, I wrote a story for, for Vice News yesterday talking about some of the leadership. You know, James Topp, you know, this, this veteran who's been walking across the country, um, he himself is not, he has not actually said anything um, violent or dangerous. I mean, like I said, he's espoused some anti-vaccine beliefs, uh, but he's a veteran and, you know, he, he was, I think, has told a pretty good line in terms of, 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 of never kind of straying from his core message and not advocating for anything crazy. But here's the problem. He has repeatedly uh, affiliated with, with groups that have. I mean, he's even gone on the podcast of a group whose members have been arrested and charged with a plot to kill cops. I mean, that's not good, right? Um, you know, and I, I think really it's important to take aim at the organizers because the organizers are consistently the ones who keep making these linkages. You know, there's another organizer who's not affiliated and actually has been denounced by a lot of the mainstream or the the, sort of the, the larger groups. Um, his name is Marcus Ray. He's organizing something for Canada Day that looks like a plot to storm a courthouse. We don't know yet how effective that's going to be. We don't know how many people are supporting him, but we do know that he has a lot of links to a lot of you know, QAnon groups, anti-vaccine groups, other more kind of extreme groups. Um, and keeping tabs on those kind of people is really important. You know, he's outwardly advocating for an end to peaceful protest. I mean, he's hinting at the idea it's time to you know, seize the country and arrest all of our politicians. So you have to keep tabs on the people who are actually driving the bus, right? The people who are actually calling people to violence, the people who are actually you know, calling people into the streets. But I think when it comes to the, the, the regular folks who just you know, you know, heeded the call and showed up, I, I don't think we, we need to spend a ton of time you know, calling them out, destroying their lives, you know, so on and so forth. I think a ton of these people have gone through a tough two years, as we all have. You know, I've talked to some of these people. A lot of them have lost loved ones, many, you know, several cases to suicide. Um, they've had a traumatic couple of years, and this seemed to them like a good solution to it. This seemed to them like a good way to get their kids back in school, to get, um, you know, to be able to see their elderly relatives, you know, to, to improve the mental health, frankly. And I, I, I think we have to have a level of compassion for them. I mean, I think that the message, the message has to be go home, right? Like, you know, the, occupying the city is not on the table again. You know, if you want to continue having these beliefs, fine. But, you know, consider a more kind of productive outlet. Um, I think that's what it's come down to, really. I mean, I've talked to a ton of the people who had come out for the occupation. And, you know, there was a diversity of reasons why they were there. And, yes, there were some backward views. Yes, there were some beliefs that the prime minister should be tried for treason or what have you. But I don't think there was a willingness to, you know, operationalize those beliefs without those ringleaders kind of whipping up this fervor and spreading these conspiracy theories. One of the more disturbing pieces of information that is in the piece, by the way, it's on vice.com. People can check it out a little bit later on. Uh, was this whole concept of constitutional sheriffs. Uh, explain yeah. that. Yeah, so this is Marcus Ray's rather wacky idea. Um, and, and, and like I say, it's very hard to figure out the, the impact or the influence of some of these folks before they actually show up in town, right? Marcus Ray could be leading a contingent of 20 people. He could le be leading a t contingent, like he says, of 5,000. We don't know. We do know that he has been quite effective at traveling the country and bringing out crowds to hear his message. Um, we do know that he has a pretty huge following online, um, and and clearly, you know, there's a little bit of money coming into his operation. So, um, he has pitched this idea that is deeply steeped in the sovereign citizen, free man on the land movement, which believes that you know, with a few magic words said before a judge, you can sort of opt out of Canadian law. You can sort of create your own legal system if you want to, and he believes that by deputizing himself and some others as constitutional sheriffs and showing up to a courtroom and saying these few magic words, that he will convince everyone in the country that the vaccines are dangerous, that COVID isn't real, and that the government has no legitimacy. And he has point blank said, we expect to either arrest Justin Trudeau or to have him walk out of his own accord, right? Um, he has repeatedly said, as his, as, as his co-organizer, Christopher James, 
repeatedly said they expect to arrest every premier and public health official in the country, maybe right down to the mayors of every city. You know, his belief is that if enough people show up and enough people support him, well, these constitutional sheriffs are the new law of the land and they can do whatever they please. And he's clearly delusional. But what he's also said is that they've actually purchased a ton of defensive gear and are going to show up en masse outside of this courthouse and quote-unquote protect it until the job is done. And I mean, if if this has, you know, if this harkens to the January 6th plan, you know, I, I think, you know, that that's, that's no great leap. I mean, this is literally what a lot of the language sounded like as folks geared up to go to the Capitol in January 2021. So I think we should be extremely worried about this guy. Um, I'm not positive. You know, I also got my hands on a intelligence assessment from a government body that keeps track of these sort of things. I'm not sure that he's on their radar yet. I think he absolutely should be. Um, and I, I am genuinely concerned. And I mean, as are many of the other convoy groups. You know, like I say, they, they have denounced him. I mean, even some of the more um, vocal and boisterous uh, convoy anti-vaccine organizers have come out and, and denounced him, saying, you know, please stop listening to this guy. He poses a danger. He's going to discredit our movement. In some cases, they've tried to paint him as a as an intelligence operative, as a government stooge. Um, but I don't know if it's going to work. I mean, I, it remains to be seen how many people are going to get behind this guy. It's, And I know that the, the agency, of course, that you were talking to, the Integrated Terrorism Assessment Center, which is an arm of the Canadian intelligence community, uh, says that it, in reality, of course, that the, the chances of, a, of an armed insurrection are highly unlikely, but mm-hmm. not impossible. Uh, so you can't dismiss the threat based on what we've seen happen in other jurisdictions and what we saw in February, for crying out loud. And it's... it's it, I'm glad you brought that up because as I was reading your piece yesterday, the juxtaposition of the hearings going on in Washington right now about what happened in January 6th in their capital with what's going on here, uh, some of the same logic, some of the same rhetoric that we've heard in situations like this, uh, and and then you've got you know the mob mentality. Um, there, there could be people that do show up there totally yeah. intent on nonviolence and protests. Uh, but that doesn't mean that everyone's that way, and you don't know what's going to happen. It only takes a handful of people uh, to draw a crowd into a situation when you're angry. And sit- I mean, we've seen that happen before, and yeah. we just don't know. Uh, I, I, I'm not, I'm, you know, and we're not trying to be, you know, hey, the sky is falling. That that's sort of an attitude. But at the same time, I think we have to be aware of the possibilities, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I actually got a, a copy of one of these, uh, they call them ITAC, reports a couple months ago that was that was issued just before the convoy arrived in Ottawa. And the report is really interesting because it does pick up on a lot of the trends that we later saw in the occupation. It picked up on a lot of the um, anti-vaccine and extremist influences and actually painted this convoy as a prime opportunity for more extreme groups to recruit and make linkages to more, you know, to, to more middle-of-the-road, let's say, anti-vaccine groups. But what it got comically wrong was what their actual intent was. It, it had similar language, you know, saying we do not believe a storming of the capital is in the cards, we don't believe violence is, is likely. It said, you know, it, it kind of gave a worst-case scenario, which was an occupation of downtown Ottawa for the weekend, for the long weekend when they were showing up in, in early January, or mid-January, rather. Which, of course, proved to be quite wrong. And actually, if you read some of the language from these groups, you knew that they were going to stay as long as they wanted, as long as they could. So ITAC is not, it does not have a crystal ball. Um, it, it, all it can do is make assessments with the best intelligence it has. Um, this assessment we're looking at now, which was issued uh, earlier this week, or last week, I believe, um, is, is pretty good. I mean, it, it gives a good assessment of where things are at. It notes the increasingly violent and extreme and over-the-top language that has come out of a bunch of these groups and increasingly, um, you know, seditious, frankly, language that is being coming from, from folks like Marcus Ray. Um, but it, it notes that you've not seen the organizational capacity from those groups that would ne- that would be necessary to actually do you know to, to achieve their ends to to overthrow the government to arrest the prime minister to shut down the city again. You know, it does not anticipate that there will be another occupation. And in fairness, the groups organizing the main rallies on Canada Day say there won't be an occupation either. So you know, the best we can do is is look at what's going on and 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 sort of figure out what capacity they they can they actually have to carry out those ends. 
And, you know, I, I think it, they're probably quite right. There will probably not be violence. There will probably not be, you know, an overthrowing of the, a, a sacking of the courthouse or what you have or, or, or what, you know, they're, they're promising. Uh, but you never know. I mean, you know, the best we can do is keep tabs on it, uh, be prepared for it. And, you know, frankly, you know, again, prepare for it, which Ottawa Police did not do last time, uh, and hope for the best. Exactly. Uh, Justin, always a pleasure having you on the program. As I say, they can go to vice.com to see uh, the piece that you submitted uh, earlier this week. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thanks. Take care. Justin Ling, freelance investigative journalist, uh, checking out some of the rhetoric around uh, the Canada Day protest, uh, which we're told is going to be on Parliament Hill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, opposition leaders and even liberal allies, the NDP, are now calling for a larger investigation into claims that RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky interfered in the Nova Scotia Mounties investigation into the massacre on behalf of the federal government and the gun control agenda. Ross Lord has details. In a written statement, Commissioner Lucky insists, I did not interfere in the ongoing investigations into the largest mass shooting in Canadian history. She says she should have been more sensitive in her approach to the meeting in question and that I regret the way I approached the meeting and the impact it had on those in attendance. Bill Blair, who was public safety minister at the time of the massacre, insists there was nothing nefarious. There was no pressure placed upon the RCMP, no interference with their operational decisions. This is, this is actually an important line between government and, and the operations of, of the police commissioner and the RCMP. It's a line that has always been respected. I want to bring Stephen Chase into the conversation. Stephen, of course, is a senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail who's been following the story. Uh, Stephen, first of all, thanks for joining us. Glad to have you back on the program today. Glad to be here. As, as I listen to, uh, to Minister Blair and, of course, to uh, Commissioner uh, Lucky here, it just sounds to me very much like this is the, the SNC-Lavalin script to just uh, change Hello? the names a little bit, and, and you know, that's, that's our pat answer. We have a good tech. Oh, I think he's going to try to reestablish contact with us. Stephen, of course, and, uh, and uh, Bob Fife from the Globe and Mail uh, have been checking the story out uh, ever since it came to our attention some time ago. And uh, the concern, of course, here is about government interference in situ- situations like this. And and I guess the problem we've got here is, you know, been there, done that, because we've heard this uh, this song before. And uh, the comments from Bill Blair and, of course, from the RCMP commissioner uh, indicating that uh, there's a great deal of consternation about this. And uh, the fine line between uh, police investigations and interference, and, and it can take on so many different forms. Uh, and this one here is, is very concerning because of the magnitude of the crime, first of all. And uh, the, the assertion, the accusation, uh, essentially, is that uh, yeah, this is a terrible tragedy, but maybe we can use this to our benefit. And I, I'd like to think, I want to think, that, that the government wouldn't take that sort of an attitude, that sort of mindset, uh, which is somewhat problematic. Uh, but that's what the, the NDP is certainly concerned about. And the Conservatives, uh, who have been very, very vocal about this over the last couple of days since that story broke. I think we've got Stephen back with us. Are we uh, okay? we got a better connection now, Stephen? I think so. Yes. Good. Good to be here. Okay. Uh, as I was just saying before, uh, we had the technical problem there. As, as I listened to Bill Blair's explanation about this, it sounded very much like the SCNC Lavalin script. Uh, just change the names here, uh, and that's going to be our pat answer. You know, we know nothing, we see nothing. Yes, Mr. Blair has skirted around the, the matter. He has talked about, he simply repeated a line about uh, we have did not politically interfere, but he has never answered the question, which I don't know if you've actually raised this yet with your audience, but the question, did he extract a promise from Brenda Lucky to, that she would um, get the Nova Scotia RCMP to release the description of the guns as soon as possible so it would help advance or build momentum for the liberal gun legislation? He's never answered that question. Well, and it's wordsmithing. I mean, you know, he seems to imply that, uh, that you know, there's always going to be this interaction, always this exchange of, of information. Uh, but the assertion here is that, look, they were using this tragedy, potentially, uh, to try to move forward a piece of legislation that they were about to introduce. And, and, and Blair doesn't seem to even want to go there. Yes, he's not answering the question. And in fact, he, his answer when he was pressed by reporters yesterday about, well, what do you have to say about Superintendent uh, Darren Campbell's notes? This is the man, uh, a veteran RCMP investigator, praised by his colleagues. Who, who said that Lucky told us she'd promised Ottawa 
that these the description of the guns as semi-automatic weapons would be released as soon as possible. When Blair is asked about that, he just says, well, he remembered things differently. He said, well, that's his interp- That's I guess that's the conclusion he came to. But he doesn't address whether he thinks Campbell's wrong. In fact, he hasn't said that um, Superintendent Campbell, the one who, whose notes formed the basis of this, of this uh, controversy, he hasn't said they're wrong. Well, and in his testimony, Superintendent Campbell said, uh, you know, he was concerned about these politics. These notes came about long before this this scandal hit. You know, the, the work that you and, and Bob Fife have uncovered on this, uh, those are the notes he wrote at the time. Uh, so it's not as if he's trying to cover his tracks necessarily, because I, 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 there's a time gap here, isn't there? Yes, we're talking about events of 2020. And we're talking about events uh, in April 2020, and of course in May the Liberals introduced um, gun control legislation. So you've got this conversation that's going on that uh, that neither the RCMP commissioner seemed to want to admit to, uh, and certainly Bill Blair doesn't seem to want to admit to, uh, as they talk around this. Uh, do we have a, a commission to investigate the commission now? Well, uh, it's a interesting, funny you bring that up. The the NDP and the Conservatives have both asked for an emergency meeting of the Public Safety Committee, uh, and bec- they have sufficient numbers to, to basically to generate a meeting. It has to be held within five days, at which time they will vote on whether to be, to hold hearings. And they, the real question will be whether the Bloc Québécois uh, goes along with this, because you'll need all three opposition parties to agree to hearings, because clearly the Liberals won't want hearings. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, again, remind us, if you could, uh, about what kind of power that, that if they do decide to strike this committee and bring this before to that committee, uh, is this investigative? Uh, can they call witnesses? Can they demand witnesses be given, uh, well, be given the, testimony? The problem with Canadian parliamentary committees is they never use their full powers. In, in, in theory, they have the power to compel testimony, but they rarely use it. Uh, however, uh, it, they have the power of naming and shaming. If they were to call, for instance, Brenda Lucky or um, Superintendent Campbell, and they refuse to show up, uh, that would look really bad. So generally, uh, committees rely on naming and shaming to get people to show up. Uh, but in theory, they have the ability to uh, have the sergeant arms issue a warrant and so on and so forth. But uh, we're talking about something that just doesn't get used in Canada. As you mentioned in, the, in your reporting on this, too, uh, Superintendent uh, Darren Campbell from the RCMP uh, said he was reprimanded at length by the commissioner for not giving this information, which tends to, to lead us to the conclusion uh, that there was an expectation on Lucky's part that that information was going to be forthcoming. Yeah, and she says, according to his notes, look, I promised the Prime Minister's office and Mr. Blair that you guys would release the description of these semi-automatic weapons. And, and you don't understand, they need this because of their legislation they want to bring in next month. Uh, which, which is rather damning in and of itself. And you just have to wonder exactly how, where this is going to go. Um, what, what are the next steps here? I mean, the parliamentary aspect of this is one. What does this do to the integrity of the investigation, though, that, that, that is ongoing? I guess are you're talking about the mass casualty uh, yeah. commission. Are you talking about that? Yeah. Well, um, the, I mean, the mass casualty commission's I guess central role is to figure out how to uh, how do we uh, how how badly do we screw this up and how do we prevent it from happening again? I'm not. I think this is a uh, an, uh, an adjacent issue. I don't think it affects the Mass Casualty Commission. Although I must point out that the transcripts uh, where some where this information has been uh, revealed are heavily censored, heavily redacted in some cases. In fact, there's another person, not Superintendent Campbell, but a former strategic director of of uh, communications for the RCMP, whose transcript, whose separate transcript came to light a few weeks ago, and she said, she said of Miss Lucky, this is a commissioner that doesn't know how to say no to the PMO, and she said, um, you know, that this commissioner was under pressure from the from Bill Blair and, and the PMO. The problem is, her transcript, it's heavily redacted. There's black lines everywhere, and and so we're hoping that the Mass Casualty Commission will uh, reconsider this because. Uh, her transcript forms an earlier uh, revelation about the pressure that Miss Lucky was under, and uh, we apparently there's a process to ask them to unredact it. They claim that the, all these black lines in the transcript are because to protect personal data and also people's medical condition or whether something would harm the security and dignity of a person. But frankly, as a reporter, I'm I find that the 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 amount of redactions are, are crazy. So. 
Um, that is another aspect of this, but I don't think it's going to affect the Mass Casualty Commission directly. I think there's an outgrowth of that, uh, and, and it's sort of adjacent to what they're doing. And listen, this is the same thing we've heard before. Every time a, an agency starts redacting certain pieces of this, I mean, it happened with the Mueller report a couple of years ago too. Uh, and we have to take them at their word because we don't know what's behind that black ink. It just, uh, and uh, let's face it, there's a credibility issue here when they simply kind of fall back to that as an explanation for just about everything. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, um, Trudeau, uh, Mr. Trudeau is in Africa. Hopefully, he'll be required to answer questions on us today. Uh, nothing yet. Uh, and um, Miss Lucky, I guess, is going to have to address her future at some point. Uh, uh, it appears that, you know, that one of the questions will be whether the Liberals make her wear this or, or whether she survives. So that's another uh, issue we're watching. What about the, the as you said, there's going to be some conflicting testimony here from uh, RCAP Superintendent Campbell and uh, and what Bill Blair is saying in these situations. But you mentioned in the piece here, the commissioner accused me, That's uh, these are Campbell's words here, of disrespecting her by not following her instructions. I was to remain confused, was and remain confused about this. I said we couldn't because, uh, and he gave the explanation here, uh, it would uh, hinder the U.S. side of the case as well as the Canadian component. So yeah. for, Blair to, for Blair to come across and say, well, this is just uh, Campbell misinterpreting, this seemed to be a very lengthy conversation. Uh, between Lucky and Campbell. This is, uh, you know, I don't know how you can walk away from that and just say, well, maybe I didn't uh, understand this part. I mean, he basically was called out on the carpet, I guess. Yes, and again, what you raise is really interesting. Uh, Mr. Blair has skirted around this. He is not disputing what Superintendent Campbell wrote. He's trying to limit his, uh, his lines to, we didn't commit any political interference, and those are Mr. Superintendent Campbell's conclusions. So what, at some point, there's, uh, in, if there is committee hearings, uh, and I assume there will be, uh, the government is going to have to be confronted with the question, are you right or is Superintendent Campbell right? Well, and, and here's Lucky's comment, uh, according to your piece here. I do not interfere did not rather interfere in the ongoing investigation into the largest mass shooting in Canadian history, she wrote in her statement. <laughs> but she doesn't say that she didn't interfere with, with Bennett's uh, information gathering. In other words, she uh, this is a matter of interpretation, I guess. I mean, she, she seems to be indicating, I'm not trying to tell the commission what to do, uh, but she is telling one of her subordinates to release information from that commission. She hasn't, She's saying she didn't interfere, but she's not addressing the question of whether Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Blair interfered by telling her what to do. So she's taking it upon herself and making it seem that this is only about her actions. But this is not. This is about her description of what she was asked to do by the Prime Minister's office. And Commissioner Lucky has not said whether there was political interference from the PMO and Mr. Blair. She's ignored that, and the government has conveniently ignored that in its responses as well. What happens if, because uh, you, you raise a very interesting point about this, the ramifications of this, uh, Stephen. Uh, Lucky could resign, quote-unquote resign, or be told to resign, I guess, really. We'll never find out that, or not. But it, that's not going to end this, is it? I mean, let's face it. This is on the government, not just on Lucky. It is. It's, uh, and you mentioned SNC-Lavalin. That's something we, we're seeing a lot of parallels with. Uh, it, the government uh, just simply keeps repeating, well, we didn't conduct interference. We just, we, sure, we're going to talk with people, but we didn't tell them what to do. But it's apparent from the notes of Superintendent Campbell, who is a veteran police officer who is much respected by his peers, that it's apparent that Miss Lucky felt that she had made a promise to the Prime Minister's office that she would um, have the RCMP behave in a certain way that would help the uh, build support for their gun control legislation. There is supposed to be an arm's-length agreement. The RCMP is not an arm of the government. Uh, there have been other situations, of course, where the, they seem to be uh, getting marching orders from governments, uh, or we don't know, their political interference has been uh, thrown out there before. What does this do to the credibility of the RCMP, who have already got a few bumps and bruises anyway from past indiscretions? Yeah, well, it doesn't, it doesn't help them at all. I mean, the the perception among reporters in Ottawa, among the press gallery, is if, if you know the RCMP inevitably is going is going to uh, fumble things, and they fumble things over and over again. Um, they can't get convictions. They can't. They can't. Uh, I mean, look at Air India. So it th doesn't help them at all. It's, it's part of the narrative uh, about the RCMP and the and the way it, it fails. Is there a, is there a way for for the government to wiggle off the hook here? 
Uh, as you say, yeah, they can lamb. they can hold out. Yeah, they can hold out Lucky as a sacrificial lamb, but I, I, it doesn't seem yeah, as if the, the public's going to buy that. Lucky, that's their, that's going to be their situation. Is, uh, is, is they're going to make her take the blame? I think that's the way they do it. Is they 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 um, they isolate it, they they compartmentalize it, and make it about her, right? Because she's the one who's being written about in the notes. She's the one who who um, is. Uh, I think you're already seeing that that. You know, they they're they're going to make her wear this, and they're going to make her address this, and going to make it up to her to resolve this. But is there any any indication at all in in all the research you've done on this uh, as to why she would, what what would be her motivation? And, and, and unless she's following an instruction or a, a promise that she made to somebody, as the RCMP commissioner, uh, should she care one way or another whether or not the, the the that information is released? It seems as if the government has an agenda here. Why would the RCMP commissioner have an agenda? Those are the questions we wanted to put to Commissioner Lucky, and we haven't been able to. Hopefully, the committee, the public. Uh, safety committee will be able to put those questions to her. And in a minority government, of course, uh, the opposition parties uh, can pretty much swing the hammer in that commission, can't they? As long as they all cooperate. If uh, one of them sides with the government, then it doesn't work. Who would do... Are you talking about the block here? Well, the block is the uh, wild card at the moment. The um, There was an effort by the parties to sign one letter yesterday to if, for instance, if they were, they were going to write a letter to the Commons Committee chair, Jim Carr, who's a liberal, requesting an emergency meeting to deal with this. But in, in the end, the effort broke apart, and they wrote separate letters, which together, the NDP and the Conservative letter, are enough to actually bring a meeting forward, just because of the way the rules work. But the block suddenly disappeared from the effort, so we don't know what they're going to do. The block, we have a sense they may, but um, sometimes the block doesn't want it to be seen that they're just the tail that gets wagged by the... Uh, the, the sort of the conservative or NDP dog. So the bloc likes to keep its powder dry or its or its or its intentions un, un, unknown until the last minute. So if we have a meeting of this committee, um, there's a there's a thought that they're going to cooperate with the two opposition parties because um, there there's it would be in their self interest, but they haven't actually made that clear to us yet. We are heading towards the uh, the summer recess for Parliament right now. Is there a, an opportunity here, a chance that the, the the feds may just try to rag the puck until then? Well, if you're talking about the committee work, the the committee, because of the letter that the NDP and the Conservatives wrote yesterday, Jim Carr, the chair of the Public Safety Committee, must hold a meeting within five days. And so that will happen regardless, even if the House is not sitting or not. It doesn't matter. Um, this is an emergency meeting. In terms of the House, yeah, they've got their lines and they're going to stick to it. And Mr. Trudeau, I guess he's he's, he's happy that he's not in Canada to have to answer questions from, from MPs. So... He's in, I guess, Rwanda today. Yeah, he is. If, in fact, this they, they, these do coincide, I know I'm getting into the hypothetical, sorry, Stephen, but uh, if the summer recess does occur, even, you know, Carr holds this meeting, uh, could the work of this committee continue through the summer, notwithstanding the fact yeah, that Parliament would be in recess? It'll, it'll depend on how the members vote, and it'll require all three opposition parties to work together to hold the meeting to make sure they well, take place. Uh, it's not going to go away anytime soon, clearly. Uh, great reporting on this. Thank you so much for all the work you've done on this, Stephen, and thanks for spending some time with us today. You're welcome. Always a pleasure. Stephen Chase, Senior Parliamentary Reporter for the Globe and Mail, uh, following this story about, uh, well, now the RCMP and uh, alleged involvement uh, by the federal government in the investigation. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.